I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to uh, Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. We're continuing our series in lessons from Judges, doing what's right in our own eyes. And I'd like to ask us if we could pray as we open the scriptures this morning. Almighty God, in your Son Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and give to us the reverence and the humility without which no one can understand or apply your truth. Through Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen. As we're making our way through this uh, uh, book, we are here in chapter 2 at a summary of what's going to happen. And in this summary, we're going to look at three different cycles. And it will be discouraging to you. It will feel like, man, this is, this is bad. Why do these people do this? And yet, as we look at it, we're going to go, wait a minute, that's me. <laughs> Why do I do this? And at the end, we're going to discover where our hope is found, okay? So be prepared for quite a bit of bad news through most of the message, but then when we get to the end, there's some real wonderful hope in store. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Judges chapter 2, uh, we'll read the whole chapter together. And by the way, I'm just delighted that the uh, first through sixth graders are with us for the summer, and we're glad to have you with us, uh, and we're going to have a great time this uh, summer in the scriptures together. I'm glad that you guys could join us today. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim. By the way, that means weep, um, weepers. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. From among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies 
Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Please have a seat. We're going to begin by looking at what I call a crazy cycle. It's a crazy cycle of disobedience and judgment. We're introduced in verse 1 to the angel of the Lord. Now, I believe that is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. That is Jesus appearing on earth before he actually takes the form of a human person uh, in, in, in uh, the incarnation in Luke chapter 2. Uh, but we'll save that for another time. I'll do further explanation of that, particularly when we get to the Samson story. But this angel of the Lord, who I believe is Jesus, makes a promise. Uh, he says, I brought you up from Egypt. That's God was the one who did it. So the angel of the Lord is God, not just a messenger from God. That's why I think it's Jesus. I, I saved you. I brought you to the land. This was according to my promise that I had sworn to give to your fathers. Notice that the way in which the inheritance of the land was not because of Israel's greatness. It was not because of what they had done, that they were delivered, that they were saved. And this is a picture of our own salvation. We are not saved by what we do or by our greatness. It is according to God's promise. God's further said that he would never break his covenant with his people here. End of verse 1. And then he told them, you're to make no covenant with the land's inhabitants. That is, don't make any treaties with the people in the land. I'm going to drive them out, which is why the um, agreement that they made with the people of Gibeon in Joshua chapter 9 was so bad. The fact is, Israel did not obey what God had told them to do here. Verse 2, you have not obeyed my voice. And then this question, end of verse 2, what is this you have done? What a plaintive question. God asking Israel, what is this you have done? Did you know it's the same question that God asked Eve in the Garden of Eden when she had taken the fruit and eaten it and given it to Adam and he ate? God said to Eve, 
What is this you have done? And so, there's a promise here that's a sad one. I will, verse 3, I will not drive these people out before you. They will become thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. You might ask at this point, why do you call this a crazy cycle? The reason it's, this cycle is crazy, this cycle of disobedience followed by judgment, is that chapter 2 verse 1 says, I'll never break my covenant. But God also said in verse 3, if you compromise with these nations, I won't drive them out. It's like the Lord is saying, I've sworn to give you the whole of this land, but I've also sworn not to give it to a disobedient people. <laughs> so how's God going to do that? That seems impossible, right? So we enter into crazy times. The time of the judges is a time that defies neat answers and clear-cut solutions. In fact, in the judges, we'll be confronted almost constantly with questions like this. Wait a minute. That's not right. How could God bless that? Or, why is God so harsh about that? It's part of the crazy world that one enters when we have the tension of an eternal covenant that God makes, but it is with a people who are constantly rebelling against him. So there's going to be things in Judges that feel very crazy. Verses 4 and 5, the people recognize that this crazy cycle will be bad. They lift up their voices and they weep. In fact, they call the name of the place Weepers, Bokim, Weepers and they sacrifice to the Lord there. What's interesting is that at the beginning of the book of Judges, right here in chapter two, you have Israel weeping and making sacrifice. And at the end of the book of Judges, you have Israel weeping and making sacrifice. <laughs> One clear application that Israel understood here is that at least initially, they knew that all of this was their fault, not God's. The crazy cycle and the confusion that happened with that craziness was their fault, not God's. Today, it is all too frequent that even God's people will end up blaming God for the consequences of their own disobedience. In the process, they lose faith and hope in the goodness of God, and they end up trying to convince other people of the unfairness of life and of God's ways. It's part of the crazy cycle of disobedience and judgment. In verses 6 through 10, we're introduced to a sad cycle of leadership vacuum. And here in verses 6 through 10, we head a bit backward in time in our story, though the author doesn't give clear markers of that. In fact, trying to sort out a chronology of the judges is <clears throat> a fascinating but very difficult exercise. Perhaps it's better to think 
uh, of it this way, that the author is dealing with these cycles in a thematic rather than chronological way. I think that, for example, there's some things at the end of the book of Judges that probably happened before some stuff in the middle of the book of Judges happened. And so, uh, it's probably not organized in a chronological manner. But it's also why, as you read the book, because it's organized in a thematic way, it's why you see everything spiraling in these cycles. It's a spiral, a cycle, but it's spiraling downward. It's going downward all along the way. It's not likely that that happened perfectly chronologically, but rather the author is choosing to write in a way that spirals things downward. With that in mind, in verses 6 through 10, we come to a point in the book of a backward look to the time of Joshua when Joshua was still alive. Verse 6, the tribes go to take possession of the land after Joshua has done the major work of getting rid of the major enemies in the land, and now it's up to the tribes to take out the, the small pockets of Canaanite resistance. In verse 7, it says that the people follow the Lord all the days of Joshua, and, of all the, and they follow the Lord even after Joshua died all the days of the elders of Israel who served under Joshua. All of those people, Joshua and the elders, had experienced God in the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. In verses 8 and 9, Joshua dies and is buried at his own inherited part of the land, a, a town called Timnot Harris. It's a place that's mentioned twice in the book of Joshua. But in verse 10, all that generation dies. Not just Joshua, <clears throat> but all those elders and all that generation were gathered to their fathers. That's an interesting phrase. Um, in the hill country of, uh, of Israel, you don't bury people by digging a hole in the ground. There's not that much dirt. It's all rock. And so you cut tombs out of rock. And what they would do is they would cut these tombs and then they would have these little chambers and they would lay the bodies in the chambers and then when the body had decomposed, they would take the bones and they would place them in the central pit of the tomb so that then the chambers could be used for future generations of the family that died. And so being gathered to your fathers was the indication of all these bones being gathered together into one pit of the family tomb. At any rate, they'd all been gathered to their fathers, and then the next generation arises, and they've got two problems. First problem, they did not know the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't know some things about God. It means that they didn't have a personal relationship with God. They did not know the Lord. The second, thing they, the second problem they had is they did not know the work that God had done for Israel. Oh, they knew the stories of the Exodus, of the parting of the Red Sea, of Passover. They probably celebrated Passover on an annual basis. But they did not own the stories as theirs. This new generation arose, and it was like that belonged to somebody else's story, not their story. I'll ask a question of those of you who are older this morning. 
you can define whether or not you are. Have you ever felt the challenge of trying to explain something that you think is important to a younger generation and they just don't see it as important? For example, uh, today is uh, the 77th anniversary of D-Day where the Allies invaded Europe and stopped the Nazi advance in the West and uh, were able to, over a period of time then, about 14 months, achieve uh, total victory over Nazi Germany. There are people, even here in this room, who probably, uh, if they are uh, old enough, may even remember the, the power of D-Day and, and its importance the sacrifices that were made. There are others who have loved ones who served in Europe and would feel that. And then yet there's another generation that would go, eh, seems like that's pretty distant history, great for us, you know, kind of thing. There's a challenge of trying to explain something that you think is important to a younger generation. Now I'm going to ask a question for those of you that are younger, and again, you get to decide whether or not you're part of this question. Have you ever had some older person try to explain some boring thing to you and wonder why they were so insistent that you understand it? Like, I just don't get it. Why is this important? No. This was the problem in Israel. There was an older generation that was wanting to pass on these things. There was a younger generation that was like, eh, I'm not sure we get it. And who's to blame? Well, I love what Tim Keller says about it. It's always impossible to lay blame neatly when one generation fails to pass its faith on to the next one. Did the first generation fail to reach out? Or did the second generation just harden their hearts? The answer is usually both. And that's what's going on here in the time of the judges. That's a sad cycle of now a leadership vacuum, people not knowing the Lord and they're not knowing the work he had done for Israel. Uh, not so much in terms of not being able to pass a test about it, but they didn't feel it as theirs. It's not their story. So now we come to verses 11 through 23, the hopeful cycle of revival. Uh, and initially you're going to go, what's hopeful about this? I hope that will be your question as we make our way through it. God's people in verses 11 and 12 run away from God. Again, as we have mentioned in this series, the problem with this world is not pagans living like pagans it's Christians living like pagans. The problem for Israel was not that the Canaanites living in their land were living like Canaanites. It was that Israel was living like Canaanites. That was the problem. <laughs> there probably were lots of discussions about uh, talking about all those evil Canaanites in the land. But the problem wasn't there. The problem was that they were living like Canaanites. Notice what it says, verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
This phrase, did evil in the sight of the Lord, is a phrase we're going to encounter several times in Judges. Chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 6, chapter 13, verse 1. It's something that's part of a cycle here of bad news. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Again, this isn't the idea of abandoning the Lord in uh, 100%. It was rather adding other gods to their lineup. In other words, what they were saying is, yeah, we'll worship the Lord, but we'll also worship the Baals that are of the peoples around us. Paganism, the paganism of Canaanite theology could accept the existence, but not the total sovereignty of God. The Lord could be one of many gods. He could even be first among equals, but you can't say there's only one God and Him only shall you serve, which is what the first of the Ten Commandments says. That wasn't allowed. And so what happened was these people joined into what's called a syncretism. Yes, a worship of the Lord after a fashion, but a chasing after all these other gods. And from God's perspective, it's either or. You either worship me totally and absolutely and only, or you are not worshiping me. You are abandoning me. And that's the phrase that is described here in verse 12. It says, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. Now, it's important to think about the anger of the Lord here. It is not that God got red-faced out of control who spewed insults. Dismiss that idea of anger from your picture here of the anger of God. God's anger is judicial. This is God in holiness watching with horrified anger at his covenant people, abandoning him for the gods of the Canaanites. God had actually judged the sins of the Canaanites by a decree that they would be disinherited from the land. The very people that God was judging, the people of Israel are now embracing along with all their gods. And when it says they serve, verse 13, the Baals and the Ashtarot, that just means the male and female deities, which makes up for fertility. The whole idea of success in the ancient Near East was about being fertile, having the ground be fertile, having more people, etc., etc. Now, that's not an idea that's too attractive to 21st century Western society, but it is something that was extremely attractive in the ancient Near East. We just have other things that are attractive to us that the Canaanite gods are also capable of providing. How about if God's promised you to be healthy or to be thin or to be attractive to others or to be successful or to be rich? It's just that same kind of thing that Israel is pursuing here. It just goes by different names. We're we're dealing with the same stuff. And so they 
add these gods to their world of worship in the hopes that those gods will provide all these things for them. And God hands his people then over to plunderers. Do you see it there in verse 14? He gave them over to plunderers who do what plunderers do. They plundered. (laughs) And God sells them into the hands of enemies so that they could not withstand them. And even when they tried to withstand them, God's determined thwarting of them even stopped their natural fighting abilities. Look at that in, 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 in verse 15. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. So they had a natural ability to fight, but when they went out in their natural ability, God was actually pushing against that in a supernatural way to bring about their failure. And that happens when a culture runs away from God. Sometimes we like to trust in our natural abilities. We like to trust in who we are and how we, we can manage this. We can solve this problem. There isn't a problem we Americans can't solve, etc., etc. And, and we, as we chase after it, what happens if God says, oh yeah, I'm going to supernaturally stop you? That's what happened to Israel. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As they warned, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And here's the phrase, and they were in terrible distress. That's the result. Verse 16, God provides a rescue by means of judges. Now this word judges is a word that can be misunderstood. These judges did serve in some ruling capacity, but it was really the idea of a deliverer, a heaven-sent deliverer, God bringing a deliverer at just the right time in the worst possible situation to save Israel out of the hands of these plunderers. But verse 17 says that they didn't listen to the judges because they chased relentlessly after these other gods. Verse 18 says things went well as long as the judge was around, Uh, even though they often didn't listen to the judge, God was so moved to mercy that out of compassion he would send these deliverers to them. Do you see it in verse 18? It says, The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. But verse 19, When the judge died, they went right back to their evil ways and were even worse They didn't drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. This doesn't sound too hopeful yet, does it? The one constant point to be made to this point in this hopeful cycle is that Israel was determined to sin and violate the covenant that they had with the Lord of glory. They were determined to do it. They probably had all kinds of things going on in the country, uh, conversations. Usually in the city gate is where it happened. Today it would happen on social media, right? But in the city gate, people were talking. And one of the things they're talking about is, what's wrong with our country? And there were probably all kinds of things that people were citing. Well, it's our lack of leadership. Or it's our lack of effort. We're not trying hard enough. Or different strategies were mentioned. 
We need to keep in mind what David Beldman says in his commentary on Judges. Like God's people in Judges, we do not need better leadership, greater effort, or better strategies. We need to stop, repent, and recenter ourselves on God. So, uh, verse 20, the anger of the Lord is kindled and the disobedience now creates some permanent damage. Verse 20, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I've commanded their fathers, have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that, got, that Joshua left when he died. And this is not God's fault. It's the result of disobedience. The permanent damage is that the nations that God had determined hundreds of years beforehand that he would take out of this territory because of their own sin, God was now going to let them stay there and be a thorn in Israel's side. In Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham that he, his, his family would become a nation and they would inherit this land, but he wasn't going to give it to them yet. And this is why, because the sins of the people that lived there had not yet reached its full measure. God gave them centuries, at least 400 years of time for those Canaanites to come to the Lord. They didn't. So God was going to push them out of there and bring his people in, but his own people decided that they were going to be like Canaanites, so God says, all right, fine, we'll keep Canaanites here. Do you see what a crazy mess this is? These nations are going to stay in the land and be a test for Israel, verse 22, in order to test Israel by them whether they'll take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly. Where is the hope here? You're you're asking, I hope you're asking, why do you call this the hopeful cycle of revival? Um, first, we are just like Israel. <laughs> um, our sin has created permanent damage. We have been delivered by God, but we still chase our own kingdoms and dreams. And we think that we can be helped by other gods to be at peace, to be wealthy, to be thin, to be healthy, to be successful. Let me give you three ways. There are people who say, let's chase the God, little g, of politics. That's going to be our savior. We will chase that. And that can be true left, right, or in the middle. There are other people who say, well, what we need is to be, and here's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days, we need to just be spiritual. And by spiritual, that means you're embracing anything and everything. I'll say something controversial here. I think that there's a way in which that Christians chase after things like yoga, that are extremely hazardous. And it's a God little g, I think, that can lead to all kinds of problems in the effort to be at peace, wealthy, thin, healthy, successful. A third way 
that I see it happening is that there's a whole group of people who call themselves Christians who say, no, 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 God isn't a God who demands our all. No, he's a God who, if you say the right faith words, is there to give you health and wealth and success and peace and all this wonderful stuff and you'll be well-loved and liked. All you have to do is just say the right faith words and God will do that for you. That is not God. We've been delivered by God as believers and we still chase our own kingdoms and dreams and we think that we can be helped by other gods. So, first reason for hope is we're more like Israel than you might imagine. (laughs) Second, the fact that Israel survived this period is completely by grace. As you read, as we go through this book, you're going to see time after time, why did God even allow them to survive? And the answer is because he's a gracious and compassionate God, not because Israel earned or deserved it. And there's hope in that, isn't there? To know that we have a God of grace who is ready to forgive us. Thirdly, there's hope in the fact that a new judge with a capital J has come. His name is Jesus Christ, who's perfect in all his ways and is, in fact, the great hope of Judges chapter 2. For if Israel was saved by these compromised judges, and as we go along the way, you're going to get one, one week after another, you just go, what? How did, that, how did they get sa- saved by that person? And what's wrong with them? All along the way, we're going to feel that. If Israel was saved by these compromised judges, consider what a great salvation we have, brothers and sisters, as our inheritance being saved by a judge who not only rescued us from our enemies, but from ourselves, and is himself the sacrifice that was made for us. There's hope here. I love what, uh, what Tim Keller says in that regard. He says, ultimately, there's only one hero in this book of Judges, and he's divine. When we read through this part of Scripture as a historical recounting of how God works to rescue his underserving people through and out of the mess their sin brings them into, then it comes alive to us in our heads and hearts and speaks into our own lives and situations today Judges is not an easy read, but living in the times we do, it is an essential one. The hero here is Jesus. There's a tension. There's a tension that is in this book that the hope in this cycle resolves. Here's the tension. How can God make a promise, but then seemingly go back on that promise without being sinful himself? He promised Israel the land, and yet he leaves these evil Canaanite people in it. The only solution 
is to have a judge with a capital J, a deliverer who is himself both one of us and yet God himself, and he must die to save his people from their sins. It is at the cross that we understand how God resolves the tension. On the cross, our sin was placed on Jesus and his righteousness we become clothed with it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now at this point, you're probably wondering, maybe even perhaps throughout the entire message, why is Pastor Scott wearing the bag? I want to tell you a story a story of a cycle of revival. This bag is made by the IRA people of Bolivia. The IRA were uh, cannibals. The first missionaries that came to the IRA were killed and perhaps even eaten. But there came a time where the IRA people heard the message of the gospel And as almost as one, they came to embrace Jesus as their Savior. It was a a remarkable story. There's a book by Peter Wagner called The Death of the Bird God that tells, that recounts the story. And so these bags that were once used for poison darts and arrows and such became for the IRA a satchel to carry their Bibles. Uh, But that would just be a great missionary story, wouldn't it? How does that relate to revival? Well, the next generation of IRA were tempted because they got more and more in contact with civilization and the urbanization of the country. And so they went into the cities and got caught up in all of the things, the temptations and issues and wrongs and hazards and sins of life in modernity. The second generation of IRA ran away from God, despising what the work of God had done in their parents and perhaps in some cases their grandparents. But what's wonderful is that there is a third generation now rising. That generation sees their parents as having done something very shallow. And they, this third generation of IRA, are returning to the Lord. I want to read you from a fellow, an IRA, named Dejide, in a little thing he wrote called, God's Word is Appealing to Me. In IRA, I'll try to say it, I'm sure I'm butchering it. It's Unaripisi Dupade Orode Omeyu. The Holy Spirit and our flesh are always fighting inside of us. What I know is this when Satan is working in me, God's word is not as interesting at those times. But I also know that when the Holy Spirit is active in my life, at those times, God's word is very interesting. 
It's so good that I can hardly wait to share it with my fellow IRAOs. I'm so grateful for the times when God's Holy Spirit makes God's Word appealing to me. Come now, my fellow believers in Jesus. Let's not deceive Jesus. Let's not try to fool Jesus or his Father. Let's give ourselves to God. Let's give him everything we are and have. We won't be able to fool God on that future day. Let's not hide the sin that is in our hearts. Whoever does not have a clean heart might fool the rest of us, but God knows exactly what's in our hearts. The day is coming when God will look for our names in the book to see if our sin has been forgiven or if we have never truly asked God to forgive our sin. Judges, the IRA, you and me. We inhabit the same world. We need the same deliverer. Heavenly Father, please guide us just like this Dejiti has challenged us this morning to not deceive you, not to think that we can fool you, but to give you everything we are and have out of thanksgiving to you, not because we would earn our way into heaven. We can't do that. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here who's never truly put their faith in Jesus to forgive them of their sin, they would do it right now. That they would say, Father in heaven, forgive me of my sin by what you did, but what, by what Jesus did at the cross in shedding his blood for me. I invite him to be my Savior and my Lord. I place my faith in him. And in him alone, I will have no other gods. Now, Lord, I pray that you would bless your church with a hopeful cycle that not just does revival come and then pass away and then it goes bad, but that there is a way by looking unto Jesus whereby we can be revived in our faith in you and that work have permanent effects. We pray it for our church. We pray it for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.